Greetings, and welcome to this very first edition of my Faith to Live By podcast. I'm your host, Pam Christian, and I'm known for bringing balance to rational thought and spiritual realities. I'm both an apologist and a charismatic, wanting very much for us all to better learn how to live in both spirit and truth. As an apologist, I earnestly study God's Word to gain understanding in such a way to be equipped to defend the faith, or another way of saying it is to respectively give reasons for why I believe as I do. This allows me to share my faith effectively. As a charismatic, I earnestly study God's Word to understand the authority and power offered to us through faith in Christ so I don't unwittingly hinder the work of the Holy Spirit in and through me. I'm all about living by faith and enjoying the many benefits faith provides. As Spirit-led Christians, we emphasize the importance of faith, but do we really understand faith? Understanding faith is the subject of this and my next podcast, so if you feel that your life is lacking, that your faith is ineffective, that the supernatural victory life we read about in the New Testament is not sufficiently part of your life, then these two programs should provide you some operational help. That is, help that you can actually use to experience an increase of faith and all that it offers. But first, so you can know a little bit about me, to decide if what I have to offer you is worth your time, let me share about me. I wasn't raised in a Christian home. My parents were not religious, although they both had grown up in homes that professed some faith in Christ. My mother's family was from the Pentecostal persuasion, and my father's was from the Masons and Eastern Star expression. I was occasionally allowed to attend church with an aunt or a neighbor, And I often suspected that my mother helped us get dressed up and send my sister and me out to Sunday school so that we would not wake up our volatile father who was sleeping off the night before. I liked getting dressed up to go to Sunday school. I especially liked the peace and the calm that I experienced from my Sunday school teachers. The teacher said that I could invite Jesus into my heart to be my forever friend, and he would save me from sin and hell, which she explained was a very terrible place. At that young age, I didn't know what sin was, but I knew what a terrible place was since that described my home. My father was abusive, alcoholic, and unfaithful, so I readily did what the Sunday school teacher suggested and invited Jesus into my heart. As I grew up, I rarely attended church and instead followed the ways of the world, the then radical world of the 60s and 70s. Because of the pain of my early home life, my goal was to hurry up and grow up and get married, and then I wholeheartedly believed I would finally experience the secure, loving family I had longed for. With that goal, I entered into a serious relationship that lasted four years, and I truly thought that I'd marry that man. But it turns out very good that I didn't because he was much like my father, abusive, alcoholic, and unfaithful. Shortly after this relationship ended, I was in another that lasted three years. I thought I would marry this man, but once again, it was good I didn't. He, too, was very much like my father, abusive, alcoholic, and unfaithful. Not realizing I was living a pattern, I entered into a third relationship, which lasted two years, and like the others, this relationship ended because he was abusive, alcoholic, and unfaithful. At this point, with my heart repeatedly broken, I finally realized the issue was me. I was attracted to men who were very much like my father because that was the only thing familiar to me. Counselors have long known what I finally discovered, which is we seek that which is familiar, even if what is familiar is not in our best interest. The only way to break this pattern is with intentional awareness and effort. So I took the next three years to work on myself. 
I was determined to get emotionally well so I could finally accomplish my life goal of getting married and having the secure, loving relationship I deeply longed for. At the end of this time, I met David, who had no reputation for being abusive, alcoholic, or unfaithful. I was healthier than ever, so I felt safe to pursue this relationship. We were inseparable for nearly one year. More confident than ever, I knew David was the man I would marry. About this time, when I expected he would ask me to marry him, he abruptly and without any warning broke off our relationship. And this literally broke me. It was dark by the time I got home. Once inside, I dropped my purse and my keys to the floor and closed the door by simply leaning into it. Hearing it latch, I stumbled over to the couch and collapsed on it. The pain was unlike any other I'd ever known. There were times I felt completely numb and utterly mindless. This was followed by onslaughts of sheer agony with waves of memories from different times in my life. Hot, uncontrollable tears streamed down my face while sobs and groans came from a depth within me that I didn't even know existed. This was more than just the fact that David broke off our relationship. It was the accumulation of all my life's pain, pain I'd brought on myself and pain imposed upon me. This night, experiencing the greatest heartache I'd ever known, I questioned everything I'd ever believed and ever hoped in. It was as though there was three of me pouring over my entire life, one who was compassionate, one who was condemning, and one who was observing it all. With each memory of a different painful life experience, there was a struggle for a proper understanding. My thoughts drifted further and further back. I don't know how long I was contemplating my life, but it seemed I finally arrived at a memory in time that made some sense. I very clearly remembered my time in Sunday school. I recalled the teacher explaining Jesus could come into my heart and be my forever friend and help me in my life. I remembered I had distinctly prayed and asked Jesus to come into my heart. So I thought, if that was true, then why has my life been one heartache after another? I had said the prayer as the teacher taught us. Was Jesus my friend? Was Jesus even who the Sunday school teacher said he was? Was the Bible true? Is God real? In my greatest pain I'd ever known, alone in my living room, I found myself praying. I said, God, Heavenly Father, Jesus, if you are who the Sunday school teacher said you are, if you are truly the good, loving, and merciful God who can make sense out of my life, then I need you to now more than ever. I admit I have really only thought of you as my Savior to keep me from hell. I haven't wanted you to be Lord of my life, but tonight I'm willing to surrender to you completely. If you can make something good out of my life, then I need you to, because on my own, I've only proven that I can't. What happened next was something I have never experienced before, and I haven't experienced in the same way to this day. I heard the voice of God clearly speak to me. It wasn't an audible voice. It was spirit to spirit, and I've since taken time to write down what I believe he spoke to me in order that I could share my experience with others. And this is what I heard God say that night. Pamela, you only understand in part. I brought David into your life and I also took him out of your life to confirm to you that it is not an earthly relationship you deeply long for. You long for me. 
You met me once a long time ago. Don't you remember? You were very little. You learned about me from the Sunday school teacher when your parents let you attend church with the neighbors. Remember? I promised you I would never leave you or forsake you. I know you remember. You gave yourself to me then, but through the years, my heart has been repeatedly rent because you have sought the love you need in many other ways, career, position, material possessions, and relationships. Yet I have kept my promise. Though you have never acknowledged me in your heart of hearts, you only see me as savior for your eternal future, I am the God of yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Now, Pamela, I will wait no longer. Today I have removed from you that which you perceive to be what you deeply long for, so that you can finally and abruptly see the truth about who and what you really need. My tears stopped flowing. My soul was quieted. I had a profound sense of peace, and the deep inner longing within me was finally and completely satisfied. In awe, I remained motionless, gratefully reflecting on what God had just said to me, pondering it and cherishing it, confident in the truth of his words. From this experience, I had to know more about God. I realized that through my exposure to God as a young girl, I merely knew about him. Now I wanted to personally know him. This started my journey to find truth. I had an entire life of cultivated beliefs, many of which I had merely accepted without any consideration. I had unanswered questions, doubts, and fears that I now wanted to find answers to. I had friends from faiths other than Christianity who talked about God. What made the distinctions between different religious faiths? Are we all worshiping the same God, just with different expressions? What about what I'd been taught about each person finding their own truth, since what is true for one person is not necessarily true for someone else? I had so many questions that I could no longer leave unanswered. This life experience is what set me on an earnest course to discover truth and finally understand faith. What you'll hear with my podcasts and read in my book series, also called Faith to Live By, stems from my academic study and my spiritual experiences. I've since gained a certificate in apologetics from Biola and an honorary doctorate of divinity from the Holy Spirit Broadcasting Network International Fellowship of Ministries Apostolic Center, where I'm also recognized as an international evangelist and apostle. I'm a blend of both intellectual and spiritual pursuit, which is how I firmly believe God intended all of us to live the Christian faith. I offer balance between rational thought and spiritual realities. And as I've said, the deepest earthly desire I have is to help other people discover the same life-giving truth I've been blessed to find. If you come from a Christian denomination that does not believe the supernatural gifts are for today, if you've been taught that science is supreme, if you've been taught that evolution is the origin of all that exists, if you've been taught that truth is relative, if you've been taught all religions are equal, if you've been taught any of these, yet you still feel unsettled and you're not confident of what you believe, I can help you. If you have loved ones who have been taught any of these claims I mentioned and you are at a loss as to how to reach them with the truth of God's word, I can help you. One of the questions I've stumbled upon and I ask my audiences everywhere I go is this, who in this room wants to live your life on the basis of a lie? No one ever raises their hand to that question, which is highly revealing.
First, it reveals we all universally want to live our life based on truth. This means we universally conclude truth is better than a lie or deception, which we conclude is bad. This then means we all universally have an innate moral compass allowing us to know good from bad. Where did this universal moral compass come from? Evolution can't explain morality. Evolutionists generally believe in materialism or naturalism or empiricism. Materialism defines everything in pure, physicalistic terms that can be understood by chemistry and physics. Those who are naturalists explain everything solely in terms of natural law without any appeal to transcendent law or supernatural things or beings. Those who are empiricistic explain everything in terms of that which you can access by the five senses. Each of these attempt to understand morality within their belief system without having to make an appeal to a divine being. Their claim goes something like this. In order to survive, animals develop. Through the process of natural selection, naturalistic forces mold certain behavior that we call moral behavior, which simply functions to allow the organism to exist and continue to survive. Actually, not the organism, but the species, because in some cases it requires sacrificing individual organisms so that the larger species can survive. This is all they claim morality ends up being. Does the evolutionist's definition of morality ring true to you? Is their explanation wholly adequate to explain the effects of morality we actually see? How can the evolutionistic view of morality explain why a person would, without hesitation, rush into a burning building to save others? Drill down in conversation with evolutionists by asking this question, why should I be unselfish? And they will answer, I ought to be unselfish because it's better for the group, which is better for the species, which in turn is better for me. So why I ought to be unselfish is because it's better for me. It's better for me? Then it's not unselfish. Selfishness is not considered by any human being as being good. Greg Kokel, an apologist I've learned a great deal from, explains, and I'm quoting, I have argued for a long time that morality the existence of moral things, the notion of moral actions and moral motives, the reality of morality, is a very powerful evidence for the existence of a moral God, whose character is the moral standard of the universe. I won't suggest that this is without problems, but I think it best answers the existence of morality." End quote. Stand to Reason is the name of the organization that Greg Kokel founded, and you can read his article from his website, which will be provided on my show notes. In future programs, we can explore evolution and morality further if you like, but for the purposes of today, let's conclude that morality comes from the moral lawgiver whom Christians know to be the God of the Bible. My question for us today is this, what does the Bible say about faith? Most of us will immediately consider Hebrews 11.1, 1, which is the one verse in the Bible that defines faith. It is also one of the more difficult passages in the New Testament to translate. One of the reasons is the use of the Greek word hypostasis. The writer of Hebrews states, quote, faith is the hypostasis of things hoped for. Translation of this Greek word is critical to understanding the passage. The New Living Translation states, faith is the confidence. The New King James states, faith is the substance. 
The New American Standard states, faith is the assurance, and the Woost New Testament Expanded Translation states, faith is the title deed. Those of us who are charismatic spend a lot of time emphasizing faith and the importance of having unhindered faith in order to move mountains. But what do we really understand about faith? If you do a word study on hypostasis, you'll find all four of the translations of the word have merit. Faith, then, is the confident assurance, the substance, and the title deed of what we hope for. The word substance leans on the idea of foundations or footings. So they are below the ground, they're essentially invisible, yet footings and foundations are essential to the support of the building. Likewise, faith is the foundation of our hope. In my studies, it's not the amount or size of faith a person has, but the purity of faith that allows us to move mountains. Any measure of doubt will impair our faith. When Jesus said, I tell you the truth, if you had faith even as small as a mustard seed, you could say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it would move. Nothing would be impossible. We see that in Matthew 17, 20. Well, Jesus was speaking about the importance of unwavering faith, not a quantity of faith. If a person has unwavering faith, even as small as a mustard seed, then they could say to the mountain, move from here to there, and it would move. I suspect you've heard, maybe even you've said to someone, you just have to have more faith to see your miracle or your prayers answered. We really need to rethink our understanding of faith. Hebrews 11.6 from the NIV states, Without faith it is impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists, and he is the rewarder of those who earnestly seek him. So I ask you, do you have faith to believe God exists? Do you have faith to believe God rewards those who diligently seek him? If you do, then you are pleasing to God, according to Hebrews 11.6. However, in my experience, there have been times I don't doubt God exists, but I do doubt his will for me. In my past understanding, I didn't see God with emphasis on his desire to reward me. When my prayers, especially long-term prayers, continued to go unanswered, I was tempted to think of God being unkind or uncaring or any number of unbecoming traits. What about you? If you're truly honest, has there ever been a time when you doubted the goodness of God? Has there ever been a time when you thought God was withholding goodness from you? If you've ever felt anything like this, your faith has been adversely impacted. We need to have faith that's confidently based on truth. Remember the question I like to ask my audiences. No one ever raises their hand to the question, who in this room wants to live your life on the basis of a lie? You want, I want, we all want to live our life based on truth. You want your faith to be pure and able to produce mountain-moving results. We can't see our faith produce the supernatural results Jesus promised us unless our faith is pure unwaveringly confident and based on solid truth. If our faith is based on anything other than solid truth, our faith will be impaired. Our faith is determined by what we believe to be true, whether or not what we believe is actually true. What we believe then is the foundation of our faith, and as I explained earlier, our faith is the foundation of our hope. Unless our faith is based on truth, we will never fully attain the evidence of our hope.
Again, as charismatics, we place a lot of emphasis on faith, and I believe that we are out of balance unless we have equal emphasis on truth. If we want our faith to be effective enough to move mountains, then we'd better make certain our faith is pure and based solidly on truth. A lot of people claim truth is relative. They say what is true for you is your truth and what is true for me is mine, even if we don't agree about truth. Well, you may recall I mentioned that I'd been taught truth is relative and learning more about this claim was one of the early questions I needed to settle with my newfound faith in Jesus. Now, let me help us properly consider the claim truth is relative. First, the claim that truth is relative is an effort to make truth personal and subjective. We cannot verify what another person is feeling because feelings are subjective. So by claiming truth is relative, adherents to this perspective are attempting to make truth itself subjective. This in turn means truth is whatever a person decides for him or herself. The ability to determine what is true allows a person to deny the standards of truth and moral living established by God. It allows people to be their own God. Evolutionists see humanity as the highest form of life, and therefore each person is his or her own God. Relativists and evolutionists share a lot in common this way. By attempting to make truth subjective, the individual is free to live their moral life as they please. Relativism is the impetus for people to reject the long-standing, commonly held beliefs about truth and morality. Yet, as demonstrated with my one question I like to ask audiences, in reality, no one wants to live their life on the basis of a lie. Therefore, we all have an innate moral compass that allows us to intrinsically know what is good and what is bad. When relativists live lifestyles contrary to long-standing beliefs about morality, they must invent parallel standards, then insist others uphold to their beliefs, because after all, truth is subjective, so they claim. This twisted reasoning, along with a demand for tolerance, is a large part of what has silenced the church. As a whole, our society has bought into the claim that truth is relative, with the idea we don't have a right to tell others how to live, even if we know the way they live is bad. It's bad for them, and it's bad for the whole of society. Why? Because we say so? No, because God says so. And if we as genuine born-again believers are unwilling or unable to defend our faith, then clearly our faith is not based on truth. We don't have a strong truth conviction. One of my favorite personal quotes that I heard myself say several years ago is this, quote, there are generations of people who are going to hell in a handbasket that's been woven by the church. I know that hurts, but sometimes the truth hurts. Let's unpack the claim relativists make. Another way of saying what they believe is to say, quote, there is no such thing as absolute truth, end quote. Really? Well, let's examine this further. To say there's no such thing as absolute truth is making a statement that relies on the law of absolutes. The simple claim, truth is relative, is an absolute statement, which actually provides a defense for the fact that truth is absolute. Truth is objective and verifiable, unlike feelings which are subjective and unverifiable. 
Remember, as charismatics, faith is essential, and our faith must be based on solid truth or our faith cannot be effective. If we want to see the abundant, victorious life Christ demonstrated and said we can live in, then we must make certain what we believe is based on truth. How can we know truth? (laughs) This is an age-old question people have wanted to bend the answer to in order to satisfy their own carnal preferences. Truth may be more difficult to discover in our culture, but it can be found and with confidence. For a matter to be true, it must align with three points. If any one of the points is missing, it is not truth. First, truth always lines up with reality. Second, truth is universal. What is true in America is true anywhere else. Third, only one thing can be true, and all opposing matters are false. Truth always lines up with reality, okay? As much as I might claim I'm only 20 years old and I'm at my perfect weight for my height, reality reveals otherwise. Truth is universal. We in America believe water is wet. Anyone anywhere else in the world believes the same thing. Only one thing can be true and all opposing matters are false. If it is day, then it is not night. Now this point gets into what's known as a law of non-contradiction, which would say it cannot be both day and night at the same time. Now let's consider some of the arguments people from the relativists' camp make. They would say, if truth is absolute, then no new truth would be possible. Well, this claim mistakes the process of discovery with truth. People once thought the earth was flat, when in reality it was a sphere or a globe. Truth is revealed and understood over a period of time. Truth itself is not altered with new information. Relativists would say, absolute truth is too narrow. Well, any truth claim is narrow because truth by its nature means anything that opposes it is false. Relativists might say, absolute truth is dogmatic. Yes, it is, because the claim of truth excludes non-truth, which makes it reasonable to be dogmatic. And here's the one supreme claim. They would say, no one can know something is true. Well, yes, we can know if a matter is true based on the process of discovery. If we don't understand the truth about a matter, it doesn't alter the truth. Truth exists beyond ourselves, and we have the three tests proofs to be able to know a matter is true. Truth is not subjective to our feelings or opinions, rather the converse is correct. To have true, loving compassion is to want others to know the truth and to live in what is good now and forever. It's my goal with these podcasts and all my work, really, to help people discover and live in the same life-giving truth I've been blessed to find. God says that we are to worship Him in spirit and in truth. As charismatics, we've done a good job living in the spirit, But I'd like to see us do better at also living in confident knowledge of our faith based on truth. This is why next week we'll delve further into the matter of faith consistent with my first book in the series called Examine Your Faith, Finding Truth in a World of Lies. Teaching faith and truth to our children is essential, and unless we have a confident faith that we are able to articulate, we won't be able to properly teach our children. This is why I want you to know about my friend Leanne Mancini's absolutely beautiful book series, Adventures of the Sea Kids. 
She's a professor at Florida Bible College and Seminary who, when raising her children, discovered there were no books to help children learn biblical principles for living. There were plenty about stories from the Bible, but none to teach children how to live the Christian faith. Her book series are gloriously illustrated, hardcover books perfect for children's ages 7 and under. You can get any of the books in her series and be a support to me with this podcast by using the link provided in the show notes or by visiting my podcast website at faithtoliveby.com. Faith to Live By is a division of Pamela Christian Ministries, LLC, a ministry that I began in 1997, and it's grown to offer many different goods and services. There is my multi-award winning Faith to Live By book series, our travel division, my speaking and teaching ministry, and my award-winning blog. I invite you to visit my main website, PamelaChristianMinistries.com. You can learn a whole lot about me there, probably more than you ever really wanted to know. But if you'd like to be one of my insiders, subscribe to my complimentary bi-monthly e-newsletter. I don't like a lot of email myself, so I only send out my e-newsletter every other month. When you subscribe, I offer you your choice of a free gift in appreciation for your subscribing. And I'll have links to the web pages in the show notes as well. I hope you'll join me next week and tell your friends and family to listen to part two of my podcast about understanding faith. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Your review helps the show reach more people and spread the gospel. Until next week, I'm Pam Christian asking you to remember Christ died for us. The least we can do is live for him. 